We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. On today's podcast, we're going to be discussing synchronicity, the coincidences which seem to conspire to tell us something, teach us something, or turn our life around. My guest is Robert Hopke, who is a Jungian analyst and licensed marriage and family therapist from California, and the author of There Are No Accidents, Synchronicity and the Stories of Our Lives, and There Are No Accidents in Love and Relationships. Synchronicity is one of the terms from Jung that's entered into the popular imagination. How did he define it, and what does it mean? It's great to be here, Andrew. Thanks so much. And I always say that at the beginning of my lecture. It's one of those interesting things, along with extroversion and introversion. Again, coinages by Jung that have entered into popular parlance. Synchronicity, too. I'm always having to correct people. Sting and the police did not coin the term synchronicity. (laughs) He used it. I frequently say that everything you need to know about synchronicity is in the title of his actual book. The book that he published on synchronicity in 1950 in his late life is called Synchronicity, colon, an A-causal connecting principle. So how he defined it was he wanted to establish a principle of connection that was parallel to the principle of connection that underlies empirical science, which is cause and effect. You know, we have a material cause and then there's an effect we observe them. What he wanted to do was establish synchronicity as an a-causal connecting principle in which two events, either an inner event or an outer event, or two inner events, were connected through uh, psychological meaning. So instead of it being a physics, he was thinking about it as psyche. It was a psychological connection. So that's why it was a-causal in a sense. It was like the connection is there between two events, the coincidence, and those two events are connected through their meaning. So it's very appropriate. I'm at a, on a podcast called The Meaningful Life because <laughs> meaning is the essence of synchronicity. So that's the quick and easy way to say it, I think, for people to understand, which is that a synchronistic event is a meaningful coincidence. We have coincidences all the time that occur that aren't necessarily all that meaningful or significant. And you and I can go into a bit what does meaning mean, you know, in this context. But, you know, two things can happen at once and they don't necessarily have that much significance to somebody. A synchronistic event takes into account the psychological, interior, subjective, symbolic, emotional meaning of the event to the person. Now, I'm going to give a quote of yours, which I thought was really illustrated this, and perhaps you can sort of explain it to me. It's like plot developments that make us feel like a character in a grand, mysterious story. So can you expand and explain that? Yeah, that comes from my book, There Are No Accidents. What happened in the course of my writing about synchronicity, which I've been doing for probably about 30 years, was when I was getting the material together to write the book, because I'd written a number of different articles for Jungian journals on it, it became kind of clear to me that when I would ask people about the synchronistic events they had experienced, they began to tell me a story. Everything sort of turned into a narrative. And that put me on the track of the kind of quote you just read. In other words, what became clear was there was a narrative coherence to people's lives that they were largely unconscious of until the synchronistic event or the meaningful coincidence occurred to them, which brought them to an awareness of that coherence. You and I are just sort of walking around living our lives, and we're sort of largely unconscious of the deeper connections that we may be living. You know, you and I are thinking about the grocery list, (laughs) getting gas for the car, getting to work, having our coffee, etc. And then something occurs And suddenly we're catapulted into a deeper level of awareness of the connections we have either with the outer world, with other people, with our own past. And those are the sorts of things that suddenly when that happens, it feels as if we're a character in a novel. We see 
what happened in chapter one and chapter two of our lives has a connection to chapters nine and 10 in our lives. And that's what a synchronistic event I found brings to people's awareness. That was the approach I took in the book. The subtitle of the book is Synchronicity in the Stories of Our Lives, because the synchronistic events begin to shape themselves into a narrative. Now, there's a psychological reason for that that you and I can get into in the course of this podcast. There's a psychological reason for that experience of coherence. That is why Jung wrote about synchronicity. He used synchronicity as an illustration of a particular point he wanted to make about our underlying wholeness and coherence as psychological beings in the world. So that's a little bit what comes across on the upper level when people start telling me their synchronicity story. You know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. There's a narrative coherence to it. So it does feel oftentimes people will say, oh my gosh, it's the kind of thing that only happens in movies. It's the kind of thing that only happens in books. And I always turn that on its head. I mean, it happens in movies and books because it actually happens to us in our real lives. I would sort of say books and movies aren't natural phenomena. They just don't fall out of the sky. People write them. They write them because this experience of meaning is then expressed in works of fashion fiction that then express that meaningfulness. And in fact, real life is sometimes stranger than the movies because the writers will actually say, well, nobody would believe that. So we have to throw that away. Even though it really happened, nobody would actually believe that. You know, I've been a therapist for 40 years. I can tell you, you can imagine the kinds of stories that I've heard. I mean... The stuff I've heard, I was just like, yeah, no one would ever believe that if you would actually put it on. So that's why, you know, all the stories in the books that I've written, the two books that I've written, you know, the first one's a more general book. And then the, the second one is about synchronicity and family relationships, love and family relationships. They're kind of incredible. It's one of the most exciting and sort of interesting things about doing this research for all these years. It's like the most amazing things occur, like the most improbable, impactful unbelievable, really, frankly, unbelievable sorts of things occur. Yeah, exactly. But that's what that quote goes to, the narrative quality of these events and how they awaken us to the deeper meaning of our lives. So I think the best example we could give of a synchronistic story is your own story, because you were adopted. (laughs) And the way you found your mother is a synchronistic story, isn't it? Do you mind sharing it with us? Not at all. I'm more than happy to. I mean, and in a way, it's a story that illustrates the different aspects of synchronicity, you know, in a, in a particular way. Yeah, I was adopted at birth. You know, I was brought home by my adoptive Hopkey parents at eight, three days old. You know, I was adopted at birth. And in the course of my life, growing up, I had a very happy childhood very happy with the Hopkins. I had a wonderful childhood. I have an adopted sister. You know, a lot of adoptees, I think, feel sort of mismatched or kind of out of place or alienated or whatever. And that was not my case. I had a very <laughs> happy childhood. But what was one of the more interesting things about my development was growing up in New Jersey outside of New York, you know, there was nothing but Italians and Jews in my hometown. <laughs> so there I am. And suddenly I I took French. I spoke French fluently after spending a summer in France when I was 14. I came back. I started taking Italian. Now, you know, no one's seeing me at this point. I've got sort of, you know, silver hair. I'm 63 years old. But at the time, I had dark, curly hair, you know. And so here I am in this very Germanic family. And I look look, sort of like this Fellini character in the middle of a Bergman film. You know, I'm the big, extroverted, dark-haired you know, loud, funny Italian guy. <laughs> I'm taking Italian and I'm gravitating to all the Italian friends and everyone's just like, wow, you know? So what happened to me was I got into my own analysis and I began to have dreams about Italian parents, my Italian mother, my Italian father. And my analyst at the time was sort of poking at it. I mean, appropriately poking at it. I was in analysis, right? But, you know, finding my background, my birth parents wasn't something that was really on my radar until it started presenting itself to me in my dreams. Now, it sort of made all sense. I mean, I was a French-Italian major at Georgetown. I lived in Florence. My experience in Florence and subsequently in Italy is that I'm often mistaken for an actual Italian, you know, because I mean, I looked Italian, I acted Italian. So my analyst was like, I bet one of your birth parents or both your birth parents are Italian, right? 
So I was like, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. Now, my late husband and I would go to Italy for vacation every two years, pretty much, for a month. And I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. So in 1990, I finally was poked enough to sort of start to do some research. So I contacted the adoption agency in Jersey City. The social worker that had done my adoption was still working there. I was only 27 years old. You know, which was now that I'm 63 and I've practiced here in Berkeley for 40 years, that doesn't seem all that strange to me. I was like, you know, she remembers my adoption. She remembered my adoptive parents, all of it. But, you know, the laws are such that she couldn't disclose identifying information, but she could disclose non-identifying information. And she did say that my mother's background, my birth mother's background was Italian. So I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, if you're Italian, I mean, Italian is this sort of like catch-all term. In Italy, everyone's very identified with their specific town or region. You know, Italian is sort of like this thing that's kind of applied on top of their major cultural identity. They're from Naples, or they're Florence, or they're Roman, or they're Milanese, you know, and then they're Italian. So that started working on me. I was like, well, where is my my family from? I mean, Italy is a very large place. I mean, I could be from the north, from the south. It sort of mattered to me. So one summer before I went, I decided I was going to contact the agency again and do an actual formal search. So what occurs here in the States, in New Jersey in particular, because the laws are different from state to state here, if both adult parties give consent, if my birth mother had given consent at the time of my adoption to disclose the information to me, should I want it, then they would just disclose it. There's no court process. It's kind of an easy disclosure thing. So the social worker had since retired. A Lutheran pastor was a Lutheran adoption agency. Lutheran pastor had taken over, and he was very wary of giving me any information. So in the course of this sort of emotional, I wouldn't say turmoil, sort of over stating it a bit, but all of these issues are up for me emotionally. I'm eager to find out my background. I'm going to Italy in a short period of time. I want this information. I have this dream. And the dream is really simple. The dream is, your mother's name is Gloria. Some voice says to me, my mother's name is Gloria. Well, my Hopke mother's name is Gloria Hopke, was Gloria Hopke. She's, she passed away in 2001. And I talked to my my husband and friends, and they were like, well, of course you had that dream. Your mother's name is Gloria. So I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. So I get on the phone. It's about a week before we're supposed to leave to Italy. And he's, this pastor is just refusing to give me information that I'm actually legally entitled to. <laughs> you know, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. I know what the family laws are. I'm like, you need to give me this information. And I just got really sort of I just got kind of ticked off at him. And I said, you know, kind of in a bit of a rush, I was like, God wants me to have this information because he was a Lutheran pastor, right? And I was like, okay, I'm going to work the religious angle. God wants me to have this information. And he's like, how does God know you want that? I said, because God told me her name in a dream. And he's like, really? I said, yeah, Yeah. you get that folder out and you open it up and you look at her name and I'm going to tell you her name because God told me her name. And he said, okay. And I said, her name is Gloria. And he screamed and dropped the phone. (laughs) Because as it turns out, both my mother's names are Gloria. I mean, it was the weirdest thing. I mean, who knew, right? But my birth mother's name was Gloria. Well, he was so freaked out by it. (laughs) He gave me all the information on the spot. He was afraid, I don't know, that God would like send out a bolt of lightning and kill him for being such a jerk. That's how I got her information. And, you know, the address that she had been living at at my adoption 27 years before was my aunt's address. It was very easy to just go to the phone book. You know, this is way before the internet and Ancestry.com or any of that, right? It was 1990. You know, I just went to the New Jersey phone book here at the Berkeley Public Library and looked her up. And I was talking to her the next day. And it turns out, yeah, she's Italian, second youngest of 14 kids. I'm the youngest of 65 cousins. It's like a small nation. The Abatello family is sort of a small nation. But I have since been, weirdly, to the two towns my grandparents came from. My great-grandparents emigrated over here separately, and my grandparents met here. So my grandparents were born in two different but very close towns outside of Benevento. I've seen my grandmother's birth record in that town. So the kid who was adopted out of the Italian family at birth 
is the one who speaks Italian, lived in Italy, went to school in Italy, found the birth records of all the family. So the family is contacting me all the time saying like, where are they from and where do I go? And well, I was like, it's so funny. So my birth mother is still alive. She's in Florida. But that was the synchronistic event that was sort of like, wow. And as I said, I think it really illustrates an awful lot about synchronicity. First of all, it's a cost. It's not like I discovered the information about my mother's actual name by doing an Ancestry.com search, right? That would be causal. Like, in other words, I intend to find it. I do X, Y, and Z, and I find it. It came to me. (laughs) It came to me in a particular way. The second aspect of it and synchronistic events constantly are emotional. Like, there's a level of emotional, what do I want to say, emotional uh, charge around the event. That's in part what makes it meaningful. It's not just a meaningless coincidence, which is kind of curious and interesting and kind of amusing. It has a deeper meaning and impact, right? There's a symbolic quality to it, always. I mean, there is her name, you know, her name has a symbolism to it, which is very interesting. A lot of times in synchronistic events, it'll be an image, it'll be a specific situation. A number of different things can have a symbolic, we can talk a bit about that because we'll talk about other stories, but there are other symbols besides that. But, you know, it was her name that came to me. So her name was symbolic in a particular way. And then the fourth aspect is transition. Uh, Synchronistic events always, I found, happen in times of transition for people. They bring them from some place to someplace else, either mentally, emotionally, psychologically, or actually literally, you know, in some cases. So that's why I start the second book out with that story, because I found when I was doing research for the first book, people would tell me an awful lot of stories about synchronicity between themselves and other family members. And I hadn't really planned for that in the first book. And I had so many stories that I decided to go forward and do a second book on synchronicity and family stories. And that story is mine. Because I was like, wow, that's very interesting. I didn't intend to find my birth mother. And yet it came to me in a dream in such a way. And the the one piece of information I needed to unlock the institutional logjam from my getting that information is the one piece of information I got in the dream. And it just so happens both my mothers have the same name, which is, like you said, if you wrote it in a novel, people wouldn't believe it, but that is, in fact, what the case is. So, And the person you had on the other end of the phone was a true believer. Who, <laughs> you know, other people would say, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, you're, yeah. you're pulling my leg, but, uh, you know... <laughs> He believed you. And that's the interesting thing about it, particularly when it comes to like that level, but either the religious or spiritual dimensions of this, correct, right? I have a whole chapter in the first book on spirituality and religion, synchronicity in people's spiritual lives, right? Because what will happen is, if you're a true believer, as you just said about him, it's very easy, if you're a true believer, to explain the synchronicity, right? I was sort of using that in a way to sort of get the information I needed. Because his explanation as a pastor would be that God had sent me that information in a dream. Now, Jung would disagree with that in the sense that he would say that might be true, that might not be true. In either of those cases, that's a causal explanation. In other words, if you believe there's a God in heaven and God communicates with human beings in such a specific way, you're entitled to that belief. But that's a causal explanation of the event. God is causing me to have that information. Jung was agnostic in that sense, as when he was wearing his psychological hat, right? He was agnostic. He was like, well, that might be true. That might not be true. That's your belief. You're entitled to that belief. I'm over here on the other side of the fence looking at the psychology of religion. I'm looking at how your religious beliefs function for you psychologically and emotionally. And if you believe it's true, then it's true for you subjectively. You don't have to prove it objectively. Subjectively, it's true. And so that's important to understand when it comes to a synchronistic event. In other words, if you believe it's so, it's so. That's your particular meaning, which is why a synchronistic event, the same external event could happen to two people. And for one person, it could be synchronistic. And for another person, it doesn't have any meaning at all. 
It's the same event. It's the subjective meaning or the belief one has about the event that one brings to it spontaneously and unconsciously that makes it synchronistic. And that's a great you know, example of it. Sure, God could have sent me that information, but if I believe God sent me that information, that is what makes it a synchronistic event. When the external event of my mother's name coincides with the internal dream that I had in which the identity of their names creates a situation that unlocks something that needed to be unlocked for me emotionally so that I could move forward into greater integration of my own identity in my own life and own the other parts of who I am with an objective foundation behind them by discovering who my birth parents were and what my actual ethnic heritage is from them. What meaning do you attach to this meaningful coincidence? The significance of it for me was that it closed an open question about my origins. That in a way, I didn't even know I had. (laughs) You know, I had such a lovely childhood and upbringing and was exposed to my parents. It wasn't like I felt very dissatisfied or troubled at all by my upbringing. But what I didn't realize was that how important it was for me to locate myself in the place that my people came from on this earth. So your conscious life was saying, you know, I'm fine with all these Germans, but your unconscious was saying, actually, it might be quite good to know a few Italians. Well, it's almost sort of after the fact, I found myself gravitating to and being in communities of Italians, 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 Italian-American immigrants that I was going to school with, living in Italy, going to Florence long before it even consciously occurred to me that I might actually be ethnically Italian, right? And so that's the way I kind of say it. I mean, the integration, I say I was adopted to and raised by Germans. You know, I had a German upbringing, but I'm actually ethnically Italian. And so I identify myself as an Italian-American, which is easy, too, because everyone says Hopke. What kind of an Italian name is that? And then I just say my mother was Italian. And that sort of explains, I don't have to go into the big, long, 20-minute story that I just went into. You know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, his mother was Italian. And everyone knows that I lived in Italy and speak Italian fluently. I've done translation work, et cetera. So it augmented, and I would say, in a way, consolidated a certain kind of sense of myself that I was living from the inside out. By that inside out, a subjective experience of being Italian was then met with the objective reality of my actually being of genetic Italian heritage. So could you give us another example so that uh, we can really truly understand what you mean? Some of the other examples, I think, you know, I could start with the the story that I, um, you know, to move away from families a bit and get a bit to my clinical work, like how I actually got into this, to tell you the truth, as a clinician. Um, because the synchronistic event occurred to me in my work with a client. And I had never really even heard of the term synchronicity when this occurred. I was an intern. I was in my early 20s. I was working with an older man who was in therapy because he was trying to get himself free from a very domineering mother. And, you know, I'm working as best I can as an intern, a rather inexperienced younger person, somebody who's 30 years older than me, who's contending with a really complicated, sophisticated problem. And, you know, he's coming in week after week talking to me, just telling me about how awful his mother is and how controlling she is and how he needs her financially and all of his conflicts about it and blah, blah, blah. Can't move out, this, that. And I'm, you know, I'm being very empathic. I'm being very empathic. But I don't know really how effective I'm actually being, you know, being somewhat inexperienced. And, you know, I'm talking to somebody the age of my father. But I was doing my best and definitely trying to help him figure out kind of what kinds of actions he could take little by little to kind of free himself from his mother's control. So there's this one session we're having at the agency I was working at. And, you know, it's California. It's the middle of winter. We're having this terrible, terrible storm. So the terrible, terrible storm that's happening is like it's roaring outside the window. It's roaring outside the window. And he's in his space, in our session, telling me how powerless he feels. I feel so powerless against her. I can't take anything. Every time I do this, she takes my power away. So I feel powerless. I feel powerless. And then all of a sudden, boom, all the electricity goes off. Wow. In the building. 
And so the two of us are sitting there in the quasi darkness. Like there's a small window in the room, you know, but it's dark. It's a dark, stormy night, <laughs> so to speak. He doesn't even notice the power goes off. He's just in his space. And I'm like, wow, there was an emotional power failure. And now there's a literal power failure. So I continued this session talking to him, and I think the darkness and the storm got him into his own internal space, and I just talked to him really gently, and I was like, I understand how powerless you feel, but I think there are ways in which, you know, you're sort of uh, have habituated yourself to this particular way of thinking about or acting with her, and I think there are ways in which you could actually exert your control and authority over your own life that you haven't really fully explored, and I numbered it few of those. And he looked at me and it sort of sunk in. He was like, oh, so you're saying I'm actually powerful. I said, well, I think you could be much more powerful than you have been and are being. And he's like, powerful. I'm powerful. I'm powerful. And all the lights go back on. Wow. Double wow. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was like, like you were saying earlier, you know, let's see stories that, you know, if you sort of saw it in the movie, you'd be like, okay, that's pretty hokey. But I was like, whoa, okay. Now, I'm an intern therapist, so I'm seeing symbolism and everything, right? <laughs> He's the client. He's just wanting to get better. He's not looking to explore. But it was very synchronistic, right? And so I go to uh, my supervisor, who's this dyed-in-the-wool Freudian psychoanalyst, and she's like, oh, that's one of those things Jung called synchronicity <laughs> in a very dismissive fashion. And that was the first time I'd heard the word. So that's an example. I think a little bit more of a typical example in a way in which a really random event, you know, that is to say the failure of the electrical transformer in North Berkeley, coincided with a particular emotional state and a particular interaction that was happening between two people. For me, it was quite synchronistic. For the client, the client didn't even notice the power had gone on or off. The client's like having his session over there in his own psychic space. You know, very symbolic. The essence of the synchronicity was the way in which the actual literal power failure mirrors the metaphorical or emotional power failure the client is seeing, right? And it was a time of transition. You know, it moved him from A to B in terms of his self-conception. So that's another example of it. I did a couple of articles because I found that in doing some research, there were a number of Jungian analysts who had actually written about the way in which the psychotherapy session is in fact a liminal space, so to speak. In other words, it's a place that people go in which they are voluntarily attempting to shed a former experience or conception of themselves, which hasn't been working for them, in order to move forward into a new and more consolidated, coherent, and integrated identity. And the therapy session is the middle stage of that, in which you, you know, you're in this clean, clear space, liminal space, liminal meaning threshold space, you know, in-between space, and you explore possibilities. You open yourself up to things. And so, a number of analysts had written about psychotherapy as a liminal space. And I found that many, many times, synchronistic events would occur to me with the client in the middle of sessions. You know, in the middle of a psychotherapy session, something synchronistic would occur. Sometimes the client was aware of it, unlike that situation. Sometimes the client was aware of it. Sometimes they weren't. And then, of course, I, when I went to Jung, Jung's famous story uh, in his own book about synchronicity was with a client who was discussing a dream of a scarab beetle, you know, that she had had. And in the middle of their session, an actual scarab beetle flies into the room and lands and Jung catches it and sort of, here's your beetle to the client. So that's an example of in-session synchronicities that I would have with people, right? And so that's another example of it synchronicities that occur in the middle of it in psychotherapy. It was really kind of how I got into it. So sometimes they're personal, sometimes they're clinical, sometimes they're completely unexpected. And how do you actually use an event like that, that you've produced the scarab beetle? How do you actually use that in a, a meaningful way rather than just a sort of a conjuring trick? <laughs> well, yes, I think that's basically the uh, question, isn't it? I mean, 
I follow Jung, and Jung talked about this a great deal. In fact, you know, Jung's wrote 18 volumes of material on the psyche, right? One of the major themes that Jung writes about is the way in which psychotherapy and integration occurs when we open ourselves up to the symbolic level of the life that we live. So I think on the most basic level, when a synchronistic event hits someone over the head in a way that they can't actually ignore like that, you're dreaming about a beetle and the beetle actually flies and lands on your lap. You can't really ignore that. Jung used it clinically in order to make this client, and I use it to make my clients aware of the potential symbolic quality of the everyday life that they live. You know, your podcast is called A Meaningful Life. That's one of the ways to create a meaningful life. I mean, we could go about living our lives literally, and there would be no harm to that, really. But the point of psychotherapy is to live a meaningful life. And the way to do that is by being alive to the symbolism that events or objects or people or situations present to us, right? And his definition of symbol, I also use, which I think is relevant here. A symbol is an image that points to a truth that cannot be fully known. In other words, not not be fully known. Correct. In other words, a symbol is in a way infinite and endless. Like the scarab beetle is a good example of it, or even my mother's name, but we'll use the scarab beetle when we're talking about it. You know, what Jung does with that scarab beetle is, first of all, it has a symbolic quality as an insect, a sort of lower form of life that comes in. It has iridescent wings, so the multicolors mean something. It is also, Jung says, it's also connected with Egyptian mythology in a variety of different ways because it's a symbol of death and rebirth. In other words, also a sacred symbol, you know, things flying, birds, bugs, hummingbirds, tend to be symbols of the spirit, because spirit is connected with air. In other words, this one sort of humble little insect as an image in human experience and across time archetypally has various aspects that symbolize, that point to basic human experiences we all have, that if we become aware of them through the action of the symbol, creates a richer deeper, fuller experience of our life than we would have otherwise. So that's the point of it. The point is when a synchronistic event occurs to a client or to a friend or to me, I like to meditate on what it might be bringing me into an awareness of underneath the surface of my literal everyday life. You know, it's a way in which, you know, sometimes you just sort of stop. The reason it has an impact, I think, is largely because it connects in a certain way with something I'm already either subconsciously or unconsciously alive to, that I need to bring to the surface and integrate into my consciousness. So uh, how do you use it? We use it as a tool in a way, you know, an opportunity maybe or an occasion to bring what's subconscious or unconscious to fuller consciousness. And then for us to actually either embrace it or simply appreciate it, perhaps sometimes ritualize it, you know, sometimes actually create the symbol and actually use it in ritual in order to remind us of what its meaning is for us. And I think it gets us in contact with the mysterious nature of the world, isn't it? That's what's so lovely. I mean, I think particularly, you know, in Western civilization, and this is why Jung wanted to contrast synchronicity to empirical science, right? We're so often literally, objectively, or materially focused Sometimes that's just due to, you know, everyday survival. We need to get to work. We need to get the car working. We need, you know, make our income. We need to feed ourselves. We need to bathe ourselves, you know. But to go about one's life in such a sort of a narrow band of material or literal concerns is really not that soul feeding. It doesn't feed your soul. And I think particularly kind of in the modern world in which a lot of religious and or spiritual beliefs, systems, or institutions have either been discredited or people have sort of just spontaneously, naturally, organically moved away from them, thinking about them. What Jung wanted to do with his psychological approach and what we do in analysis by looking at these events is to sort of re-enchant the world from the disenchantment 
of modern life and Western civilization, there's a way in which from within, if we actually foster a symbolic and emotionally aware consciousness of what's mysteriously unconscious within ourselves, we can re-enchant the world and sort of bring forward a fuller and deeper experience than we might otherwise. And that's sort of the point in psychotherapy. Jung posited that, and this gets back to one of the earlier points you and I were talking about, Jung posited that we all, in a way, our own wholeness. We all make sense on some basic level. We are who we are. The point of his analytic theory was what he called individuation. So when people hear that a lot of times, they, you know, they hear the word individual and they think, oh, you know, you want to be who you actually are individually. That's the point of therapy. And that's there. But Jung actually meant that term in the more etymological sense of the term. In other words, he wanted somebody to be individuated, that is to say, undivided, not divided, individuated. And that's what individual means. That's, if you're an individual, that's the secondary phenomenon. The primary phenomenon is you brought your, all the various parts of yourself together. You've been individuated. The divisions no longer are there, and you're now undivided. You're whole. In what way are most people divided, then? I think they're divided a lot of times because, and this is where Jung sort of stands in the long tradition of depth psychology, really pretty much, I would say, starting with Freud. I think the primary division is between conscious and unconscious. You know, just the normal human experience, of course, is we're born, and it takes really two years, more or less, for us to be even aware of our own existence. So we have two years of existence on this planet, which is totally unconscious. And yet, incredibly formative experiences occur within those two years, you know, with our environment. Then we acquire language. Then we get older. We have a bombardment of experiences that we have throughout our lives that we can't even keep in our consciousness or awareness. You know, that's sort of, I think that's the metaphorical meaning of we're only using 10% of our brains. <laughs> you know, the other 90% of our experiences, I mean, for you and me to go day to day, we can't keep that all in mind. And yet those things happen to us. They've all had an effect on us. They all feature. So I'd say the primary division is between conscious and unconscious. And so to become undivided, to become individuated, means to bring as much as one can of one's unconscious experience into one's awareness. And that's just what Jung called the personal unconscious. That's just what you and I have experienced in our actual literal existence on this earth. Jung posited that there's a collective unconscious that we participate in as well. There's a commonality of human experiences we all have just by virtue of being human. You know, we have an experience of birth. We have an experience of death. We have an experience of our parents, mother, father. We have an experience of gender-related, male, female, androgynous. We have all kinds of experiences of victory, experiences of loss. Being Italian. Being Italian is an archetypal experience, you know. So, yeah, exactly. We have experiences that are shared by other human beings that we participate in simply by virtue of being human. And there are specific personal experiences of ours that tap into what he called those archetypal experiences of the collective unconscious. So, you know, Freud talked a great deal about the personal unconscious, and Jung didn't at all dispute that. But Jung augmented it by saying that, in fact, what he noticed was that people were experiencing aspects of common human experiences directly in their dreams or in their everyday lives that had a, more of an archetypal quality to them, that had a commonality with other people. And I would say that, so that's where you say, you know, in answer to your question, how are we divided? I'd say that's the primary division is between consciousness and unconsciousness. Sometimes things are kept unconscious because they're unacceptable morally or in terms of civilization or society. That was sort of Freud's point. They were repressed right? Sometimes they're just forgotten. There's just not enough room in our brains to keep it all into awareness, you know, and sometimes they're in potential, but they've just never yet been experienced. So, you know, I'm a young person and I'm having dreams about being old <laughs> and I have, I'm not yet old, but I am old in my, you know, like there's, in other words, there's a potential experience that's happening sometimes through dreams. Synchronistic events often have an archetypal quality to them. They bring to an awareness something that 
is on a deeper level of someone's awareness that they need to pay attention to in a particular way to be more integrated. So I'm going to tell you about an experience I had. This is where I first got interested in the subject of synchronicity and whether it would be a synchronistic event. I was was one of the times I came to Germany before I, I lived in Germany in Berlin. I went to a weekend festival of workshops and for the very first time ever, I did a shamanic workshop where you sort of are sent into a light trance by drumming and you have to imagine going into a tree and being sent up either into the upper world or the lower world. And at this point, my mother was in a a coma because um, she'd had a a stroke. She was in her mid-80s and she was sort of lying between life and death. And in the shamanic journey, I had an experience of sitting round her bed with all of female relatives of the family, and then behind them, the generation behind and behind and behind. And in mm-hmm. fact, we went back through all living creatures, although they were all very much Western living creatures. We had bears and wolves, no giraffes and elephants. <laughs> and, you know, I watched her go up into heaven and it was the most beautiful experience. And, you know, it was lovely. And I mean, in a sense, was what I needed at that point. And so afterwards, because I had no idea about shamanic journeys and what it meant, I had a conversation with the guy and asked him, you know, what happened? Did this really happen? Is this a symbolic, you know, explain all of this. The question I wanted to have answered was, could I actually trust this as a, as a useful experience rather than something that was conjured up out of my imagination? And obviously he couldn't answer that question. But the synchronistic part of it was that the workshop finished and uh, I went home a couple of days after the workshop finished. And in the queue, I saw the guy who was the shaman. And so we chatted in the departure lounge. And then it turned out we were in the same row, actually sitting next to each other. um, (laughs) I was A and he was C, and we asked B to swap with us so we didn't trip over. But the third part of the third coincidence was that although we arrived at different times, his luggage and my luggage arrived next to each other on the conveyor belt. (laughs) And, you know, that felt to me a meaningful coincidence that we would be on the same flight, you know, possible, but that we should be sitting in the same row almost next to each other and then our luggage should come together. It felt like something was trying to tell me that this had meaning in some sense. So would you see this as a synchronistic experience? I would in the sense that the synchronistic event is not to be found outside. It's to be found inside. And for you, as you tell the story to me, it becomes clear to me that you experienced those coincidences with the shaman, the shamanic facilitator, as confirmatory. I mean, your question after having your own internal experience was, is this trustworthy? Like, in other words, is there a connection between inside and outside? Is it meaningful? So that's the question. And so what you're being sort of treated to is a certain way in which there are connections, You know, here you are, completely random connections with this person you didn't know before. And not just one, not just two, but three, right? In other words, that's it. One of the things I guess I would say about it, and this is what people people often do exactly what you did to me. They're just like, is this meaningful? And I'm like, well, you tell me if it's meaningful to you. I don't tell you. It's not, you know, the meaning of it is subjective. And Jung was entirely confident and conscious of the way or what I want to say, uh, affirming of the way in which if you tell me it's meaningful, it's meaningful. And so maybe the lesson of synchronicity is that we have to value our own judgment as much as anybody else's. I would say more than anyone else's, to tell you the truth, or almost exclusive to anyone else's when it comes to our own inner lives. You know, when we're talking about interior experiences, all there is is subjectivity. Right. And so that's why when you say, can I trust this? I'm like, well, yeah, you can trust it. Your dream or your vision or your experience or your meaning has happened. It happened, but it happened exclusively to you. (laughs) 
no one outside can affirm or confirm it for you. One does have to affirm it for oneself. So when you say, well, is this just my imagination? I'm like, well, let's remove the word just from that sentence. Mm -hmm. Because your imagination, this was Jung's point, your imagination, my imagination are real. They're real in a different order of reality than this lamp or that book, but they're real interior. You actually had that vision. You actually had that experience. You did experience bumping into the facilitator repeatedly in the course of your journey home as significant. You tell me it's meaningful. It's meaningful, period. That's the end of the sentence. It's meaningful. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of being a supporter of The Meaningful Life is you get a chance to write in and tell us about what's going on in your life and get the thoughts of myself and my guests. At higher levels of support, there are even more benefits and there'll be details of that and something new and exciting coming very soon. So go to look at my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. So somebody's written this letter for me and Robert to discuss. I seem to wake up around three or four, and on many occasions, my mind will be full of anxiety. Sometimes it will be money worries or some official letter that needs my attention, about which I fabricate a million and one problems. Sometimes the fears can be centred on my nearest and dearest, the result of a biopsy or that scan, or what will happen if this or that happens. Less often, it is something stupid or thoughtless that I did which keeps me awake. In the light of day, I know my worst-case scenarios are just that, but I seem to live with anxiety humming in the background, like the fridge, always there, sometimes barely audible, and others completely overwhelming. I meditate and try not to procrastinate too much, and generally I can keep a sense of proportion, but I can have two or three nights in a row where I have to stop myself from pacing around the house. It could often take two or so hours to go back to sleep. How can I find more peace? When I first read that letter, I was like, well, that's completely normal. (laughs) That's a very normal sleep pattern, I would say. My guess is the writer of the letter is middle-aged or older. That's probably the case. There's a wonderful series on science here in the United States, which is probably available on the internet as well for your listeners, called NOVA. And they just recently this week, maybe this is synchronous, just recently this week, watched their episode called The Mysteries of Sleep. There's an awful lot of current research now going on about sleep and patterns of sleep because it's a big issue in modern life. And so now with all the technology, they're able to put all these you know, electrodes on everyone's brain and notice what's happening in different parts of the brain as people sleep and as they go through the different phases of sleep. And so this program makes kind of clear what happens in a normal night's sleep is usually, optimally, what would happen is the first part of the night, we enter into deep, long-wave, brainwave sleep, and that's where we get our primary rest. And as we move toward morning, what happens is the waves get shallower and shallower, and we're coming to consciousness. So... What this person is writing about is, I'd almost say it's a universal experience, to tell you the truth. People were writing about this in the Middle Ages, actually, (laughs) medieval times, is you are slowly becoming more and more aware as we come toward morning. And as we age, our sleep gets shallower and shallower and shallower. So he or she, their analogy to the refrigerator humming in the background but sounding like a truck coming down your kitchen in the middle of the silence of the night is very apt, right? And so what happens is that, you know, the underlying anxieties that they may have get very magnified because there are no other external distractions at 3 a.m. Their sleep is already shallow and they're kind of half aroused. And so what I liked about the letter was that that person's awareness that the things they perseverate about at 3 a.m. 
are going to look really different at 8 a.m. after they've had their coffee when the sun has come up. And I actually think that's kind of the healthiest way to do it. It's just a normal part of the sleep cycle is what I would say, right? Sometimes it may take the form of a dream. You know, we dream as we're coming to awareness and dreams may feel like they go on for hours and hours, but it turns out sleep research has shown that they really only last a matter of seconds because, you know, the density of our brain action is such that it feels like hours when it's actually, you know, electrical impulses in our brains that go for just a few seconds. But that's what I would say. I don't know unless what happens then, however, is that sometimes, unlike this writer, thank God, but sometimes people then become anxious about their anxiety. And so they get into this feedback loop and this person is sort of going there, how can I get more peace? I'm like, well, A, this is a completely normal sleep pattern. B, you're aware that at 3 a.m. you're probably not thinking clearly. So let's just wait to solve that problem at 9 a.m. after we've had our coffee and we've discussed it with someone. And I think the best thing to do, and this is what sleep researchers are actually recommending these days, is to distract yourself. In other words, you don't lay in bed trying to go back to sleep. If you can't go back to sleep, you get up, you go do something. Now, I have a series of podcasts as well as TV programs that I know are going to put me right to sleep. You know, we have, we have a regular listener to this podcast, <laughs> not your podcast, thank God, but we're like history podcasts. I'm like, okay, that's great. There's a UK version of it too, Antiques Roadshow, you know, in which people mm-hmm. go around doing, oh man, that just puts me to sleep in 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, we have these like middle class people droning on about their China and I'm like, oh, I'm right asleep, right? What you want to do is you want to find something really very bland sort of boring. You definitely do not want to be watching your serial killer documentaries or your horror shows. You don't want anything arousing. But however, another, again, I'm a psychotherapist, so this is like good health habits. Don't use your cell phone. Don't use the internet. You know, you really don't want that blue light coming into your eyes and waking you up. You really want something as kind of anodyne as just audio you know, audio sleep program. Now there are plenty of sleep programs, but that's really the best thing to do. I mean, I think rather than exacerbate what is in fact a normal part of the sleep cycle by getting anxious about it, calling it insomnia, and then going about sort of going about these things, I think what happens with a lot of folks is if they can organize their lives to accommodate that normal sleep cycle, what they find is it doesn't become problematic, right? Sometimes you can't. You know, if you have to be at work at 8 a.m. and you are awake at 3, you're going to have a difficult day after a night like that. But if there's a way in which, especially these days, you know, as life changes a little bit with all the exigencies of a pandemic, right? People are working more at home. Modern life is allowing them. If you can arrange your day to accommodate your normal sleep cycle, then it's not a problem. And that's not a problem. So, yeah, I was glad to hear it by the end of that particular letter, which you shared with me beforehand, that, you know, this person seemed to have a fairly good perspective on, like, what place it has. But, you know, if you go to the Psalms, for example, you know, there's like, you know, I am awake in the middle of the night calling upon thy name, O Lord. You know, I like it's a very archetypal kind of almost biological part of the sleep cycle that this person is describing in the letter. Do you think that this person needs to be concerned about their anxiety during the day? Do you think that they're not actually aware of enough of their anxiety during the daytime? So that's why it's popping up more in the nighttime? Well, anxiety is an interesting thing. I mean, the things that this person is mentioning in the letter, I sort of say to people too, I mean, it's often not a very welcome thing to hear from your psychotherapist, but there are, in, in fact, things that I think anxiety is appropriate to have about. <laughs> you know, if the person has actually got a health issue, how are they not going to be anxious about the results of their biopsy? You know, I feel like it's an emotionally appropriate response to have a certain level of anxiety or fear about that. Or if they have financial troubles, how are they not going to have a certain level of anxiety or fear about that? So we distinguish between what we might call sort of appropriate anxiety and clinical anxiety. If somebody has clinical anxiety, the anxiety is about something that actually has never occurred to them, isn't going to occur to them, and they're simply having a free-floating anxiety. Whereas if somebody's actually reacting to a realistic situation, what she, he, they are discussing at the end of the letter is actually appropriate. In other words, while you're going about living your life, you're not aware of it. 
But then in the silence of the night, and particularly kind of at the state of later evening arousal during your sleep cycle, you become aware of how anxious you actually are about this thing. So that's what we look at. We look at, does the anxiety have a negative impact on someone's life? Is it appropriate? And that is to say, is it actually connected to a real situation and therefore appropriate? (laughs) Or is it sort of free-floating and kind of crazy? What I would suggest, and this is maybe the final thing, is don't do anything you can't undo at 3 a.m. Don't get on the internet and text your ex about how sad you are about having... (laughs) Don't buy a house because you're afraid you might go broke. Don't pay off your credit card. Do not act out. (laughs) So don't do anything on the basis of your 3 a.m. anxiety. Just wait until the morning and then it'll look really different when you're actually awake, thinking more clearly, and all the other various everyday concerns of your life are taking their appropriate place as you go about living. So I was really happy to hear that letter because that's actually something that I talk about a great deal with certain clients, you know. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. And thank you very much to the person who wrote in with that. So Robert, as I've invited you to be a guest on The Meaningful Life and be my witness here today, I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? God bless you. That's a great question. I think you know, it puts all of us on the spot that come onto this podcast. But it's a good question to reflect on. The first thing I'll just, you know, I'll pretend I'm in therapy and just spontaneously associate. The first thing I say is relationships. Like, in other words, I think my relationships with the people I love and that I share my life with have made my life really meaningful. I mean, meaningful in the sense that they help me know myself better as well as to have a sense of my own capacity to give and to love and to connect with other people. I feel like those loving, giving connections are the best of what it means to be human. And so it's in those relationships that I live my humanity most fully. So I would say my relationships make my life really the most meaningful. And so the second would be sort of the subcategory of that, which would be to say my work. I mean, my work as a psychotherapist in particular, sometimes I'm effective. Sometimes the problems that somebody brings in are kind of beyond anyone's to fix, really. And all I have Mm. to, all I can do or any of us can do is to be present with them and their suffering as they go through it. And hold it. And hold it. Yeah. It's a sort of a, you'd say, sort of from a spiritual standpoint, a ministry of presence. You know, the help you're giving is simply by being with or accompanying somebody in their and, journey and possibly stopping them doing something at 3 a.m that's true daytime equivalent of 3 a.m action absolutely absolutely you know so i think my work makes my life meaningful there's it's a very unusual week in which on friday afternoon i don't close the door to my office and I, like you know i did my best but at least i tried to make someone else's life better and to help them be healthy and whole and find some meaning. So my work has made my life incredibly meaningful in some ways. And I think the third thing is maybe my creativity. I do a host of different things creatively. You know, I was trained musically. I make music. I bake. I knit. I have a garden. I have a house. I mean, there's a way in which what I craft in my life the beauty that I create, the skill that I'm honing, the food that I make, the enjoyment that I get out of the material life, my creativity, the artwork I have around here, all of those sorts of things. I think my creativity makes my life meaningful. I would say my ability to kind of delve into that and really enjoy it. Once again, I mean, you know, our I kind of feel like our time here on this earth is relatively brief. You know, we kind of go in and that, especially at age 63, as I am now, you know, to live your life fully day to day, immersed in the beauty and pleasure of the material world through one's creativity in various ways, you know, to to meet the world and fashion it as well as to have the world meet you and for you to experience it and savor it, that makes my life meaningful. So that's why I would say relationships, work, and creativity have all made my life incredibly meaningful. Well, thank you very much for being my guest. This is the point where we finish for most people, but if you're a member of our supporters circle, you'll be able to hear us talk about what I've learned, and we'll see if Robert's learned anything. And he's going to tell us the three things he knows deep down to be true. If you want to know what those are, here is details of what you need to do. 
You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.